Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast, providing you with insightful commentary and developments in the world of healthcare leadership. To learn more, visit ACHE.org. And without further ado, your host, Chris Caraggio. Welcome, everyone, to the ACHE Healthcare Executive Podcast. Now, today's episode is brought to you by Philips. The pandemic has challenged our healthcare system with advancements in virtual healthcare delivery. Patients can now see a doctor without leaving their own homes. This can help achieve faster treatments and faster diagnoses. Now, by working with hospitals across America, Philips is making healthcare stronger care. Together, we can make life better. Philips. Okay, folks, I'm your host, Chris Caraggio, and the, uh, the um, title of our episode today is COVID-19 Recovery, the Imperative to Resolve Disparities, and we have the perfect guest in. She is Denise Brooks-Williams. Before we welcome Denise officially in and start our conversation, as always, let me, uh, let me read her bio so you guys can just kind of get to know Denise a little bit before we start our chat. Uh, Denise is currently the Senior Vice President and Chief Executive Officer of Henry Ford's Health Systems North Market and is responsible for driving revenue, growth, and overall market performance, as well as partnering with hospital executives, clinical, and non-clinical leaders to identify opportunities for service expansion and consumer experience improvements across all sites. A native of Michigan, Denise received her bachelor's and master's degree in health services administration from the University of Michigan. She has been active in numerous professional groups, including serving as president of the National Association of Health Services Executives, or NASI, uh, one of the premier minority health professional organizations in all of the U.S. She is also a past president of the Midwest chapter of the American Healthcare Executives, MCACHE, where she continues to serve as a board member. Now, Denise gives back through service to numerous community and charitable organizations. She has received several uh, recognitions and awards and honors throughout her career. To name just a few, she received the President's Award from NASI and the earliest career, the early careerist award for the Michigan chapter of ACHE. She was also named one of Crane's top 100 most influential women back in 2016, and one of the University of Michigan's five under 10 alumni award for civic and professional service. And she has been named one of the top 25 minority executives in healthcare by Modern Healthcare Magazine. Back in 2013, Denise was appointed by former Governor Rick Snyder to the Michigan Certificate of Need Commission and was reappointed in 2016. Now, recently, Governor Gretchen Whitmer appointed Denise to the state of Michigan's uh, Coronavirus Task Force on Racial Disparities, an appointment, of course, we'll be talking a bunch about in our conversation. So, Denise, welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast. Did I get everything right? Thank you, Chris, and you did. You did. Thank you very much. You have done so much in your career, so we really appreciate you taking some time out today to join the Healthcare Executive Podcast and discuss this important topic. So let, 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 let's kick it off. So unprecedented times, you keep hearing that over and over, that phrase, over the last you know five or six months now. So w- when it comes to you, when it comes to the Henry Ford Health System, your community, everything that you're involved in, what has been, what have you seen? What has been the clinical response to the virus that, that, that you have seen? Well, Chris, I think to your point, yes, we continue to hear unprecedented times, and it truly has been. When I think back to March 13th, when we 
really began to acknowledge in the state that we were going to have to do something um, relatively dramatic because, to your point, what we first saw clinically was a large number of people coming into the organization that not only had the virus, but also were in need of um, pretty significant care. And over the course of the last few months, unfortunately, um, we, along with other parts of the country, saw, you know, just large numbers of cases. In fact, over 61,000 cases have been, you know, confirmed in Michigan today with a little under 5,800 deaths, um, which has, you know, been really devastating, um, not only to Henry Ford Health System, but to the community at large. Our clinical response, um, I'm proud to say, you know, was very timely and aggressive as it had to be, where we saw our teams really switch gears on a dime and figure out how to care, you know, for the community in ways that we hadn't done before. We had people in traditional roles, but we also had people in non-traditional roles. So we had, you know, medical assistants from our ambulatory environment um, actually working in our inpatient settings and providing support to our clinical teams just to make sure that people were able to get proper rest, you know, and be able to renew themselves as they were doing the work. Henry Ford also Fortunately, through this has been able to maintain our research and support understanding what might be some of the innovations around, you know, medical intervention, trying to understand why some people are asymptomatic when they are carrying the virus, which became incredibly risky, you know, not only to the Michigan area, but to the country at large. Um, So a lot. And I think that this idea of it being um, unprecedented and something that most of us would hope to never see happen in this way again. So while we, you know, may or may not believe there to be a second wave potential, I think that from this first wave, we are going to come through it in a much better way because of a lot of the innovation that was learned. You touched on it, Denise, but I just wanted to ask curious um, about how the staff, you know, you you talked about everybody taking on a different role uh, since the middle of March. And here we are, you know, a few months later, um, what's, what's the morale? How, how is it, how, how did you get it all organized? How is it going when it comes to just the staff and managing folks? You know what, I would say that the, the early days, morale, morale was low and high is the best way I can say it, because as you can imagine, most healthcare facilities are this combination, right, of serving those that are in our communities. Many of us are, maybe you have people that are driving over an hour, but for the most part, people are driving, you know, within 30 minutes or so of their own homes. And so a lot of times, unfortunately, they may know the people who were afflicted. And so I think the morale issue was definitely related to the intensity of the virus and what we saw as its outcome, you know, on our community and and how um, intense it was to care for them. But the flip side of that is that I think the community morale and ultimately what supported the staff was just the tremendous support and outpour. So staff by us, of course, were um, given all the tools that we could bring to bear. So PPE, top of the list, of course. And as you know, nationally, many of us struggled with getting that, but I will say we didn't have a day where our teams didn't have what they needed. It could have been right in that moment, but we made sure, you know, that they were protected as well. In addition to that, really putting in place some of the economic enhancements that needed to be there so that people were being rewarded for their heroic work that was being done. Our community stepped up. There wasn't a day that there wasn't food being provided and then emotional support. I mean, this pandemic has really been taxing in so many ways because um, people worked 
in, you know, very compromising situations and then had to think about their own families and then go back, you know, into their homes. And so just the emotional support, we certainly provided it through our traditional EAP services and behavioral health services, but our community also stepped up and did a lot of cheerleading and lawn signs and, you know, this concept of uh, parades and celebrating heroes really was huge here in Michigan and the Henry Ford Health System um, team wasn't spared that love and support. And I think that that was another key contributor to morale. Yeah, yeah. Again, as we mentioned, unprecedented times. So we're just all navigating our way through that. As we mentioned, the, the name of this episode um, is, uh, you know, the uh, coronavirus recovery, the imperative to resolve disparities. And, and that topic is just so important, so vital to serving patients. And Deborah Bowen, the CEO of ACHE, touches on just that in her column in the most recent issue of Healthcare Executive Magazine. So we wanted to point that out. Now, Denise, we have seen numerous reports and studies showing that minority communities across the country have been disproportionately impacted by this virus. Now, in Michigan, specifically, African Americans and this is an incredible stat, compromised 14% of the population, but 40% of virus deaths. Now, as we mentioned back in the introduction, the governor appointed you to the task force designed to study and address this. So what has been discussed so far? Yeah, I, I think I, I any opportunity I get to, to, again, thank our governor, Gretchen Whitmore, for just her foresight um, and responsiveness throughout this whole um, COVID pandemic that we have had here in Michigan. And this was a particular fact that started to emerge in our data. And as you said, we weren't alone in the country, unfortunately. But once we knew we had a problem and the task force came into being, we decided first and foremost, we would have to be a task force that took action. You know, a lot of times groups like this come together to study an issue and a problem and produce a report and then there would be implementation. Immediately, we challenged um, ourselves and were challenged by our Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist to act. So the first thing we did was test and test and test and test because one of the barriers that we knew existed in the community was testing. Many facilities could only initially start by testing first responders. And unfortunately, what that did was allow people to be ill, perhaps not know they were, and have the virus spread. So testing was a key first component. Um, And right now, we have the capacity to do up to 15 to 20,000 tests a week, which at that time, you know, of course we didn't, but we built up to that. So that was the first piece. The other part though was transparency and data and information. What you might be surprised to find if you were talking to executives across the country is that not everybody reported their data along racial and ethnic lines. So it was not always as easy to find out exactly, you know, who was afflicted and certainly more importantly, where the mortality was really happening. So that's another piece of the work that we're doing and the task force is still working um, and will continue to work throughout the summer. And so another piece is really trying to understand who was treated and what those outcomes were. Thank God they were not all deaths, but for those that um, did, where were they, you know, treated within our healthcare systems and making sure that our data and information is transparent first and foremost, and then more importantly, studied so that we can try to understand what we would be able to do, you know, after this current pandemic. And unfortunately, if there is a second wave, one other piece of work that I'll call out because there are several initiatives, but another really important one is around provider connections. And so we've really spent time trying to assess and understand if you already have, as we know, the social determinants of care that plague people really from a social economic perspective and African-Americans, sadly, in particular in our state, 
what are some of the things that would help? So one thing that we know is if people are mentally and physically healthy when faced with something like a COVID virus, their outcomes, you know, certainly would be better. And we know that one of the reasons that they are not at their healthiest state is they don't have providers. And so we have worked really vigilantly to figure out um, how to make those connections and make sure that people have a medical home. And in doing so, hopefully, you know, they'll have stable health. And if faced with anything in the future, hopefully they'll have better outcomes. Specifically, what about the area in and around Detroit? Anything specific that you saw um, when it comes to ensuring, you know, access to information and the ability to get out the information about prevention and now maybe some information about the possibility of, of, of a second wave and how to prepare for that in the Detroit area? Yeah, so so most of my comments were absolutely affected by Detroit. We We kind of cover the community, we would call it Southeast Michigan, right, which are the clusters of cities that are Detroit and its immediate surrounding. But to your point, you have a large concentration of African American members, you know, that are in the Detroit footprint. So everything I said certainly applied to Detroit as it related to testing, as it related to access to care. And and access to care, as you know, was like a twofold issue during the pandemic. So some of it was naturally reduced and moved into a telemedicine um, component simply for the safety of the community, we focused on do people have a primary care provider that they identify? So as I spoke to you about the 15,000 tests that we hope to accomplish during a week and we are there, during that time, asking the question, do you have a primary care physician? So yes, you may or may not find out that you do or don't have COVID, but more importantly, do you have someone who's managing your chronic illness? Because what we found out is that part of the vulnerability that they had was because of the overrepresentation, you know, of chronic issues that were not managed. And so um, to some degree, that was a key contributing factor. So absolutely, everything that I've said was seen in Detroit and that surrounding community. And in areas where you had higher incidences and issues related to social determinants of care not being met. So where you had food deserts, we even, you know, from a Henry Ford Health System perspective, have a huge population health um, initiative. And so we stepped in as well to make sure that people had food. From a housing perspective, um, lots of partnership across many agencies to make sure if someone was homeless and found to have the virus, that they had a place to actually shelter in place for those 14 days. So some significant effort to have temporary shelter, you know, opportunities for people. So I I think in general, Detroit was the epicenter of a lot of what happened in the state of Michigan, specifically related to African-American challenges with COVID. You know, just a reminder, folks, that today's episode of the Healthcare Executive Podcast is brought to you by Philips. This pandemic has challenged our healthcare system with advancements in virtual healthcare delivery. Patients can now see a doctor without leaving their own homes. This can help achieve faster treatments and faster diagnoses. Now, by working with hospitals across America, Philips is making healthcare stronger care. Together, we can make life better. Philips. Okay, Denise, let's talk now about uh, currently in the pandemic, the vulnerable patients uh, that, that, you know, you've had access to and you've treated, uh, you've helped treat. What would be, let's see, what would be your advice to other leaders in, 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 in dealing with providing the proper care, the proper uh, prevention techniques, the proper information overall to these vulnerable patients? What kind of plan would you, would you suggest to other leaders? 
I think that's a great question, Chris. And and so I would I I would say I would suggest this, but I know that we've probably created the list, you know, from partnering with what others have done in their communities as well. But first and foremost, of course, as I said, is having access. So we as a system and we as a state through the task force knowledge that I have are ensuring that in this period of reopening that we have now, that there is access for people to get in and make sure that their care is stable. We have reminded people through our marketing and PR messages continuously that we still are here for all of care delivery. Of course, knowing that you know for a period of time, our inpatient environments were very focused on COVID treatment, but people sadly still have strokes and heart attacks and other things of that sort. And so making sure that those messages are solid in the community and using every possible medium that you have to do that. So very significant social media presence to the extent that someone actually has a relationship with the system. We've used texting and proactive phone calls. So really doing outreach, not just relying on the traditional scheduling of appointments, making sure that people also understand that there are a lot of virtual ways to um, interact with the health system. So again, we communicated those messages and communicated them again, you know, and, and so really making sure that they know all those points. Collaborating, what we've done a lot in that Southeast Michigan footprint that I described with you is collaborate with our community organizations who proved invaluable during that time because for some people that's where they were oriented to go for care. So when we talk about the social determinants and we talk about the vulnerability in our community, we have organizations, of course, like the United Way that provided grants during that time for homeless um, populations. We worked with Neighborhood Services Organization, which is a behavioral health entity that's in the area to help us with outreach, both for the community and for staff. And the other thing I would suggest, quite honestly, is if it's a colleague that in their particular area has a lot of vulnerabilities, but also have the data to understand that they have communities that are adversely impact over, you know, whatever data you would expect, form a task force. One of the most valuable things that we've seen of of late is the fact that our task force is not just healthcare. So it does have education representation. It has um, banking representation. So it is really a combination of trying to look at how do we have a community that is prepared and working together to be able to face a crisis. So I think that would be my last suggestion is really create an interdisciplinary group to be able to partner on whatever the outcomes are. Yeah, you know, it, it never ceases to amaze folks. Organized communication and collaboration goes a really long way. Yes. But you know what? It's easier said than done. So you you really have to uh, stay in stay in control of that, especially like you said, if you're if you're going that extra mile and building out a task force like like you guys have. Let me ask you this, Denise. Uh, you know, racial health disparities. It did not. These did not start with the coronavirus. They've been around much longer, but now it's kind of illuminated a little bit more. Uh, can you talk about the long-term steps that maybe a, a health system can take to remedy the root causes uh, of these racial health disparities when it comes, I don't know, policies or outreach or anything like that? 
Mm -hmm. I think great question, Chris. And, and again, I'll start with where we just ended on the last question. If you're a health system looking to address racial health disparities, acknowledge that those are very related to social determinants of health. And so therefore you will have to collaborate. So that's the first thing. Yeah. You won't be able to do it by yourself. But very fortunate that Henry Ford Health System has had a long legacy of focus around what we, you know, would call population health and looking outside of just the delivery of care, which is critical and important just well, but just huge initiatives that I think I could offer a few examples that some are in the policy space and some are in the program space. So first, this idea of food insecurity, as I described, we have an initiative where we call it Fresh Prescription. And FreshRx really allows our diabetes prevention team to literally write a prescription for fresh foods, cooking demos, and then check-ins literally in the home to just confirm that people know how to reverse their diabetes and hypertension or at least live with it in a much healthier way through food. But acknowledging, as I said, that sometimes people are in a food insecure environment, this really gives them the tools that they need to do that. We've targeted and focused on how we can support free and low-cost screening. Again, partnering with our faith communities and doing this at health fairs and doing it in churches gets us to where vulnerable populations are, but also helps them to know their numbers and know where they have, you know, opportunity to access the healthcare system in a better way. From a policy perspective, one initiative that is coming out of the task force, ironically, is wanting to make sure that our health plans will mandate in some way that the community health workers, which tend to be lay paraprofessional partners to health delivery teams, are out in the communities. This idea of education that we talked about earlier is so critical, but not everybody has access to social media. Not everybody watches, you know, the news. And so when we just use the traditional um, tools, we may be missing people. So we know that we need boots on the ground, canvassers and community stakeholders that are paid and that are, you know, a part of our natural system. So we're looking to introduce that. We have one of our senators that is on the task force. And so he's looking to maybe take a bill forward that would really say, that we would have contact with people who are on the roles of health plans. And for us, you know, Medicaid would cover a large number and our federally qualified health centers are on board with this as well. So this idea of community health workers being embedded into our community in a really different way going forward is something we're kind of excited about. Are you talking about there, are, Dean, are you talking about in, in that regard, are you talking about like building uh, uh, events that people can go to or maybe going door to door even? No, this, this would, this would be, no, this would be, we certainly do the events, as I mentioned, in terms of the health screenings and things of that sort. And I think most of our healthcare partners do that in Michigan. This would be having outreach to individuals that are identified because, of course, we've got hotspot mapping now where we can look and see by zip codes where we have the social determinants of care at such a vulnerable you know, rate where we know that these people are food insecure, housing insecure, maybe job insecure, health you know, status um, information. So in those targeted areas, it would be door to door or you know, barbershop to barbershop or grocery sure. store to grocery store, you know, but wherever it would be going to people as opposed to um, requiring that they come into the traditional system. Yeah, making sure everybody is covered when it comes to that, definitely. Absolutely. Um, here, we're Absolutely. getting towards the end, and we always do this, Denise. We always like to ask our guests about their experience with ACHE, uh, and, and as well as NASI for you as well, about membership, about 
being on the board, about, you know, just the networking ability that ACHE provides. Can you just talk about your journey? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think I'm one of uh, the lifelong members to both. I've, I've participated um, in the college and with NASI pretty much in my entire healthcare career. And to your point, I've been fortunate to, to have opportunity to serve in leadership in both organizations. Um, did decide to go for board certification and achieve my fellowship. And I'm actually looking over at my certificates and recertification certificates on my wall right now. And so I think it's invaluable in any emerging leaders that I mentor, I recommend both ACHE and NASI to them as both networking opportunities, but also learning opportunities. During this time of the pandemic, I will say I reached out to my ACHE colleagues as well as my NASI colleagues, and we shared notes around what were people seeing and experiencing in their communities, and equally important, what solutions were they using, you know, that were helping them to advance the care of those that they serve. So to me, it's been an invaluable opportunity, not only to network, but to have lifelong colleagues and, you know, really thought partners, you know, so that in good times and in challenging times, I feel really comfortable that I can pick the phone up and call my colleagues from either organization. The other thing I would simply add about NASI, I have always had a particular passion and interest around eliminating health disparities. And I think both ACG and NASI focus on this in their their content and in their educational forums. And in NASI, my ability to be a leader at a point in time on a national level was something that was just a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So really being able to advance that agenda of health disparity um, reduction um, and a lot of things I've learned from both. I know I've been able to use in my day-to-day role as well as even for something like the pandemic challenge. So I highly recommend membership and support a lot of people in moving towards both organizations. That's wonderful. And so Denise Brooks-Williams, we want to thank you so much for coming on this platform to provide your expertise and your exemplary uh, insight to um, resolving disparities when it comes to the COVID-19 recovery. Again, you were, you were the guest we wanted, and we want to thank you for the time that you provided today. Chris, it was my pleasure, and I thank you so much for giving us the tools that you do through this podcast forum. Definitely. And everybody, thank you once again for joining us on this very important topic of today's episode of the Healthcare Executive Podcast, brought to you by Philips. This pandemic has challenged our healthcare system. With advancements in virtual healthcare delivery, patients can now see a doctor without ever leaving their own homes. This can help, of course, achieve faster treatments and faster diagnoses. By working with hospitals across the country, Philips is making healthcare stronger care. Together, we can make life better. Philips. Once again, thank you, Denise, and thank you, listeners. We will see you next time here on the Healthcare Executive Podcast. This has been the Healthcare Executive Podcast. Brought to you by the American College of Healthcare Executives. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes or your podcasting app of choice. And for more information, find us online at ache.org.